now I'm allowed to talk, right? That works now? <laughs> well, good morning. It is uh, so good to see you again. I, uh, like Caleb said, my name is Jordan. I get to serve as pastor here. Uh, let's pray before we go into God's Word this morning. We're going to be starting a new series uh, for our time in the Word. So let's, let's pray and ask God for His wisdom. God, would you just speak through your Word now? God, would you open our, our deaf ears, soften our hardened hearts, Remind us again of the grace and truth that comes in the Lord Jesus. God, as we have this new series that we start today and over the next few weeks as we talk about the foundation of the church, would you just remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness? God, would your word encourage us and convict us? God, would you strengthen your church, build unity, and cultivate a culture that is gospel-oriented and motivated? In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, church, it's so good to be with you this morning. I'm really excited about this upcoming sermon series. We're going to be going over the next few weeks talking about church foundations. So when we think about foundations, one of the most important things that we can recognize in any sort of building structure is the foundation of the building, right? So here, uh, the church actually has a cornerstone that was established in 1882 that you can see on the front right corner of the building as you walk by. It's this like concrete block that's been uh, kind of cut out and everything. So um, one of the illustrations that we want to use uh, throughout this series is that of a foundation wall, right? So if you go down into the basement, you can see that there's a foundation that's been dug out and a wall that's been put in place. More often than not, buildings have cinder blocks, right? So Every one of us, as we come into the church, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we have walls that are built up. We have our foundation of who we are, what we believe, and what we do and why we do it. And so as a church, we're going to be talking about the foundational pieces, the building blocks of what it looks like for us to be the church according to the scripture, right? So this, this morning and over the next few weeks, I want to invite you to join me as we build a new wall to look at, this is not Trump's wall, by the way, this is a new wall that we're going to be looking at to build up and, and see the, what the Bible says about the local church. So as we think of that, I, I just have a couple of questions I want to interact with you this morning. The first is this, as we look at the, the building blocks of a Christian, how would you identify someone who is a Christian? So just from the audience, uh, just shout out a couple things if you want, throw something, that's okay too. Um, just Shout a couple ideas. What is a Christian? If you're going to build a wall and blocks full of Christians, what, what would you identify as a Christian? Okay, a Bible believer. Yep. That's a good one. Yeah, a person that professes the exclusivity of Jesus, right? Good, good. Some others. Okay, I, I clearly everybody needs their coffee. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Rita. Yeah. A servant, okay. Cool, cool, servant, okay. Some others, yep. Okay, they've trusted in God to be their Lord and their Savior. Okay, cool, good. Yep, that's foundational, yep. Somebody optimistic some of the time. Somebody, somebody optimistic some of the time, right, yeah. Yeah, that's good, that's good. They have an enduring hope. Maybe that's the way we put it, yep, enduring hope, yep. Okay. Yep. Somebody who tries to please God, good, good, okay, yep. Faith, faith, yes, 
Somebody who has faith, okay. Good. All right. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Okay, they're living life in a Christ-like way. Good, good. Maybe one more. One more. Yeah. Somebody that gives, okay. Gives, yep, good, good. All right, now when we think about the church, what are some of the most important pieces that you look for in a local church? What, what distinguishes a local church? What makes a group of people a local church? Yep. Good, good. So a church is a, a group of people who believe in the Bible. That's good. That's a good place to start. Yep. Okay. Some others. Yep. They serve their local community. Good. So they have a belief and they're sent out with a belief to reach others. Good. Good. Okay. Yep. Oh, I like that. Working cooperatively to bring glory to God. Amen. Amen. Yep. Love. All right. All right. There we go. Yeah, now we're talking some good buzzword, right? Love. Right. <laughs> we love one another. We love uh, the Lord. Good. Okay. Yep. Attendance, Attendance right? So you, you actually have to gather together, right? You can't just say a, a church is not a building, right? It actually is a group of people. The Bible says that. That's good. Okay. Some others. Yep. Oh, we are the body of Christ. Okay, now we're getting right into the Bible. Way to go. All right, so we're the body of Christ. That means that each one of us is a member, right? We each play a part, and we serve the Lord. Yeah, okay. Maybe two more. Yep. Yeah, build each other up and keep each other in check. Yep, that's good. Good, there's accountability and, and encouragement. Good. Yep. Yeah, a church exists to remember Christ and what he has done. Good. Well, these are all good pieces for us to recognize about Christians and about local churches. Uh, But this morning, what I really want to do is I want to help define a couple of things for us. I want to define what a Christian is and what a local church is. And then today's message is really going to focus in on what the mission of every local church is. Around this time of year, you're going to see a lot of local churches talking about their vision, right? They're going to say, there's so many people on Facebook, they're saying, hey, our church is going to talk about having 2020 vision, right? They're kind of running with this 2020 thing. I think it's kind of gross, but that's just me, Um, (laughs) right? So nonetheless, like, we, we want to have clarified vision. We want to be unified. We want to see the Lord clearly. We want to hear what the Bible has to say and walk with that in obedience and in truth. But as we look at these two ideas, these two groups and categories, what a Christian is and what a local church is, first and foremost, we need to see that Christians are people who have responded to the gospel message. And the gospel message is this, that Jesus has died for our sins, that he was buried, and three days later he rose from the grave. And we respond to that message through repentance and faith. So Christians are actually called in the Bible disciples. And we see that Jesus called 12 people to be his disciples. And simply the word disciple means to be a follower of God. And so I want to just clarify a couple things about Christians this morning. Christians are not perfect, right? All you have to do is look in the mirror and know that you're not perfect. Each one of us is not perfect. 
But we are people who are following God. We're pursuing Him. We're running after Him. We are responding to His good grace and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians are not perfect. Christians are not uh, the, the epitome of holiness, right? We should be reflecting holiness, but we're, we're works in progress. So if, if we're not perfect, we are still uh, being worked on by God. Christians are uh, gathered together to follow Jesus. Um, Christians are not just people who say, I'm going to follow this part of the Bible. They're committed to the Bible. They don't just take it out and, and select the pieces that they like and throw away the pieces that they don't like. They're, they're pursuing God authentically. I think these are some good definitions of a Christian. But second, I would call a church is this. A church, a local church, is a group of Christians who regularly gather together to do three things. So church has to be made up of regenerate Christians who are made alive by the Holy Spirit, who have responded to the gospel in order to do three things. First, proclaim the gospel. We exist to proclaim this message that we've responded to. You'll see on our church sign every day as you walk by and on our website as you surf the web that we are gospel-centered and Bible-focused. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is our message. It's the message we believe, and it's the message we proclaim. So a, a local church is a group of Christians who exist to proclaim the gospel. Second, A local church is a group of Christians who proclaim the gospel and affirm one another by the ordinances. And that's a kind of interesting word, right? Ordinances, uh, what does that mean? Is it ordinary? Is it some sort of extraordinary thing? The ordinances are the two practices of the church in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we exist to affirm one another. We affirm each other's gospel belief through the act of baptism, dunking people in the water to say that they have been buried with Christ and raising them out of the water to say they've been raised to walk in newness of life. So we affirm their gospel belief through baptism. And then secondly, we affirm gospel belief through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has the elements of the bread and the cup. And every week, or not every week, every month, We take the Lord's Supper to remember that Jesus has broken his body, the bread, and spilled his blood in the cup to cover our sin and to be the sacrifice that brings us closer to God in a right relationship with him. So we regularly gather as a group of Christians to proclaim the gospel, to affirm one another by the ordinances, and then the last part of a local church is a local church is a group of Christians who live together as the family of God. We are a family. We are together in everything. God has called us to be united. There is not a local church that is a singular person. The local church is the gathered group of Christians living together as God's kids to bring him glory and honor. And so what does it look like for us to live together? There's just a couple of things. We're going to really bring this to life over the next few weeks, but just a couple of things that we need to see. So first and foremost, living together means that we exercise our spiritual gifts. Each one of us has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit to use to bring others closer together for God's glory in obedience to him. We live together to serve the Lord and serve one another. So spiritual gifts are things like 
hospitality and mercy. There's things like teaching and exhortation. There are things like exercising love or giving. The spiritual gifts can be found in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. We live together as a family of God by gathering together in corporate worship. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Do not forsake the gathering together of the saints, as is the habit of son, but push one another all the more to the day of the Lord and encourage one another, for the day is coming. We exist to live together and to worship together as the people and family of Christ. So we exercise spiritual gifts, we we gather together for worship, but we also take it beyond just what we do Sunday morning. A local church isn't just a, a group of Christians that gather Sunday morning. It's actually a group of Christians that gather together regularly. And so our church does this through small groups and our discipleship groups. We, we gather together to continue to learn God's word together. We want to grow in obedience and grow in holiness. And we want to pursue God and know his word and know him more. So we gather together corporately to hear the word proclaimed in preaching and teaching. We gather together in small groups to actually dissect the word together, to ask questions and to uh, open up opportunities to say, hey, I don't get this. Can you clarify this? Or, hey, you've been walking with Jesus for some time. Can, can you help me to walk with him? A group uh, of Christians that is living together as a family of God is also a group of Christians who are individually devoted to the Lord and his glory, and his work. So rather than thinking of the churches starting with this individual, it actually starts with the family, but it does impact the individual. We belong to a other body. We belong to a group of people. We are individually responsible for the other Christians that are gathered together in this room this morning. We have a stake that's in the person's life that is next to us. We're responsible and accountable to them for the Lord's sake and for his honor. And so when we run away into sin, uh, Christians are to call one another back into obedience in God and repentance. We exist to be individually devoted as God's family, knowing that we're responsible to each other. And then lastly, as we live together as the family of God, we actually have a public witness. It, it, somebody had said this morning that the church is a group of people that reaches out to their community. And, amen. Absolutely. We have a public witness. And so how we live in obedience to the scripture actually impacts those that don't even believe it in our community. So our, our witness and what we say about God is reflected in a community that either knows him or doesn't know him. We're his witnesses in our community. So a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together to proclaim the gospel, preaching, teaching, evangelism, music, to affirm one another by the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and to live together as the family of God by exercising our spiritual gifts and gathering together for corporate worship and being involved in each other's lives daily, and then being individuals who are responsible to each other, and then publicly witnessing the gospel before lost people so that they can see the goodness of the Lord Jesus. This is what a local church is. And so in order for us to build the foundation, we need to see that this is the first block of what it means to be the church. 
identifying what the Bible has to say a church is. And it says that the are these things. And so over the next six to eight weeks, we're really going to be building more and more blocks to help see how that this local church builds into those things. How do we proclaim the gospel? How do we affirm one another? What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? How do we live together as God's family? And the first block that we need to talk about of the local church is the block of the church's mission. How many of you have heard uh, of mission statements? Who has a mission statement at work? Who knows their mission statement at work? Hey, there we go, the one, right? The one. What? I'm kind of curious, what is it? Uh, it's about the shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> mm. There we go, there we go. All right, anybody know uh, any other church's mission statement? Or any other business? They know a mission statement of a business or another local church? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, usually usually they are long, right? So, interesting enough, I, I would say that mission statements should really only be one or two sentences at most. The vision of a church could be more vague. I think, I think missions are, are really focused and they're very specific, and then the vision of that mission is a bit more broad. I'm not a leadership expert or an organizational leadership expert. I just read a few books for school, and it helps, right? So um, as, we, as we think about the local church's mission, I want to I establish this. I believe that every gospel-preaching church in our area and throughout this entire world has the same mission statement, and it comes directly from God's Word. If we're honoring the Lord and we're, we're centered on the Bible, if we're existing to proclaim the gospel— we really all should have the same mission statement. And so ours is just kind of creatively uh, brought to life, and it's this. The, the mission of Hebrew Church of Hope is to make disciples who multiply God's kingdom. If, if you want to know what our mission is, it's simply that. We exist to make disciples who multiply God's kingdom. And so God's word has something to say about this mission. And so if you have your Bible, please open to Matthew 28. Verses 16 through 20, we're going to see where this mission comes from. It comes directly from the, Lord, the lips of the Lord Jesus. And I think it's the best mission statement that any church can have. I'll give you a minute to get there. Matthew 28, looking at verse 16. So there are business models of mission statements. There are, there are Bible models of mission statements. There are churches that have different mission statements. But ultimately, like I said, I think this is the best mission statement directly from the Lord Jesus that we can see. Matthew 28, verse 16. It reads like this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Church, this is, this is simply the best mission statement that we can come up with, to make disciples who multiply God's kingdom. And, and so I want to just dissect this, this, uh, this portion of Scripture here for you a little bit and, and point out just a couple of different things. This, this scene in Matthew's Gospel is right after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus has gone to the cross. He has died in, the, in our place for our sin. He's been buried. He's been put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Three days later, he is resurrected, and now he has been presented before many followers uh, of himself. And so as he is walking with these disciples, he gives them an instruction in verse 16. It specifically says, now to the 11. The 11 disciples. So there were originally 12 disciples. This included Judas, right, who would ultimately go and betray the Lord. We'll find out from from Acts chapter 1, that uh, from our scripture reading this morning, that, that Judas, as he betrayed the Lord, he actually was so overcome by depression that he went to a field and committed suicide. Uh, and he hung himself at, in response to his disobedience to God. He was used by Satan to, to try to um, lead the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders to, uh, to kill Jesus. So the 11 disciples include the original group of the disciples minus Judas. And so it says they come to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And throughout Matthew's gospel, there's a really important note about mountains, right? Every time the Lord was given power, he would go to a mountain to pray to God the Father. So Jesus would go and he would spend time seeking God the Father in prayer. He would, he would rest in the mountain, then he would come back and, and lead the people, it's also important to recognize that the Bible shows that mountains are a place where, where God's revelation was brought. And we can see this ultimately in the picture of Moses giving the Ten Commandments. Moses climbs Mount Sinai, and he's face-to-face with the Lord's glory, and he's overcome by the Lord's power. And the Lord speaks, and, and the, the clouds thunder, and there's lightning, and, and the people are trembling as the Lord gives his instruction and his word to his people. So the 11 disciples are to go to a mountain where God reveals his truth. And then in verse 17, it says, when they arrived there, there were some that worshipped him. Right? So disciples, right, followers of Jesus, worship the Lord Jesus. We come together and worship and worship over him. But I think this is also interesting because it says, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? There's a group of people who have come to seek the Lord and who have seen a resurrected Jesus, but they're not sure about what's going to happen. And so a local church should have people that are coming into its doors and its gathering that don't fully know the picture of God, that are seeking him, that are curious, but maybe doubt a little bit. If you're doubting in the room this morning, you're in good company because we're going to tell you with confidence that the Lord Jesus is in fact Lord and Savior of people. So there are some that worship him and some that doubt him. And then verse 18, Jesus comes to this group of disciples and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is just a picture of glory, right? The the Lord Jesus has been resurrected. He's defeated the grave. He stands before these disciples now and he says, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And they should be in a moment of worshiping flat on their faces. 
the Lord of glory, the Savior of people who has died in their place, now stands before them and says, I have been given all authority. Not just the authority of earth, but the authority of heaven. The authority that comes from the Father. And it's been given to me. And they're waiting for this moment for instruction. They're thinking, the Lord Jesus is going to say something really good here. And what he does is he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the Lord of glory, who is standing in resurrected power, who has defeated the grave and overcome sin, now says to these 11 disciples who are trembling, who are full of doubt and fear, and some who are worshiping him, he says to this group, go and make disciples of all nations. All of this authority that's been given to me, I now give to you, you're to go. And so last week in our sermon, we were talking a little bit about how we exist to be a place where people can come and seek God. They can pursue God and and see him through the life of this congregation. And as the gospel makes a difference in our lives and as we cultivate a culture that continues to affirm that message again and again, that lives that message out, there will be people who will see God's glory on display. But the church isn't just a place where people come and seek. It's a place where disciples are sent. This word go is a command. So Jesus is saying to these disciples, I'm commanding you, go, therefore, from my authority to make disciples, to make followers of me, make people who are confessing their sin and repenting and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus. Where? Of all nations. So Jesus isn't just saying to the disciples, hey, focus here on just Jerusalem for the moment or just Galilee for the moment. He's saying, go in this power, which is more than all of the power in heaven and all of the power on earth, and make disciples. Make followers of me. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I ask myself this question, well, how? How are we to make disciples, right? Here's a reality that we would all hopefully affirm, affirm this morning, and maybe it's something that you're going to hear for the first time. Not a single one of us saves anyone. We don't save people, right? So it's not that we can come in and they can say, well, Jordan saved me. Well, what did I save you from? Were you choking? Like, I'll gladly help you out there. But as far as your relationship with God, I can't make you right with God. Only God can make you right with him. And he's done that by sending his son so that now as we put our faith in him, we can now see that our account as we were in debt toward God As God has sacrificed himself for us, we've been made righteous in Christ. So while we're, Romans 5 says, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for our sin. We were enemies, and now we've been made kids of God's family. Only God can do that, friend. That's not something any one of us can accomplish. It's something that God does through the power of the gospel. And so we proclaim this message. We, maybe the part we play is sharing that good news that here's the gospel. I can't save you, but God can if you would repent and believe. And that's all it takes simply. It's, it's a work of grace, not a work that you can do on your own. You can't buy your way into this. I've, recently, I started reading a, a biography by Martin Luther. Um, and it, it's his story um, actually written by Eric Metaxas about Martin Luther and I was reading about how he was a lawyer, and uh, he went through all this schooling, and there was one day he was caught in a field, 
and there was a thunderstorm and lightning was coming down and it was cracking and he was just completely exposed to all the elements. And he was seeing lightning crack next to him on all different sides and, and he cried out to St. Anne and he said, St. Anne, save me. And more lightning came and cracked around him. And then he, he ultimately cried out to God and he said, God, if you would save me, I'll, I'll give my life to you. And so he was able to flee from the the field, and he was so overcome by his conviction, he stopped going to law school, and he entered into the monastery. And as he entered into the monastery, he was so overcome by his conviction of his sin and how he needed to be right with God, he would go to confession all of the time. And he would confess to these other priests and say, here's my wrongdoing, here's my wrongdoing. I mean, like you think of confession, you think of like adultery, right? You think of lying, you think of like really bad things, right? He's coming up and he's like, I don't think I did this one little detail right this week. You know, I confess my sin, but I think there's still more sin in me. And his confessor is just getting mad at him. He's like, Martin, you're overcome by the little details. But then they were explaining, Eric McTaxis starts explaining this whole system of confession. And and there was a, a system which was created that if you were able to work up enough merit, do enough good, you could be made right with God. And then very interestingly, they started selling these things called indulgences, where if you paid a certain amount of money and you gave it to the priest, you could now become right with God if you used your account to pay for your sin. This is ultimately what made Martin Luther really mad and then start the Protestant Reformation. He was mad because there was somebody selling indulgences where he was a priest, and he was like, I've had enough of this. And so he, he proclaims this, but each one of us sometimes acts like we're in this system where if we can just build up enough merit, if we can just do enough good, if we can just pay and do the right thing, then maybe it will be credited to us so that we can now be right with God. And friend, that's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works in such a way that you can't do the right. You can't pay the debt, but Jesus has. And so through Jesus, through his sacrifice, now all of the credit of your righteousness does not stand in each one of you as individuals. It doesn't stand in Emily's account or James's account or Aaron's account. It stands in the Lord Jesus' account. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. So it's not us that saves people. It's Jesus that saves people. But Jesus sends us in his power to proclaim this gospel by making disciples, and he gives us some specific instructions. First, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're to make disciples, we're to proclaim the gospel, make followers of Jesus. We're calling people to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. And part of that call is we're baptizing them publicly. There is supposed to be a mark in a church where you can very clearly see a boundary line. There's got to be a line in the sand. You have got to recognize who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. And the Bible says that one of the best ways for us to know who is a Christian and who is not a Christian is through the ordinance of baptism. And so we baptize people saying that they have responded to the gospel message, they've put their faith in Jesus, and now they're being baptized publicly amongst a gathered group of people to say to them, I am putting my faith in him, and I'm believing in the gospel. Hold me accountable to this. 
This is, this is what baptism means to us as the church. It's why it's so important. And, and it says here that we're to baptize not just in the name of Jesus, but in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a work in which we not only proclaim the gospel through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it's a work in which we proclaim God's love as the Father who was willing to send His Son, who loved us enough, even though we were enemies with Him, He loved us enough to send His very own so that we would be made right. And then it's also an act of the Holy Spirit because it, it resembles what the Holy Spirit has already begun. He's regenerated us. We, we were dead and we were out of power, and the Holy Spirit made us alive through the proclaiming of the gospel, through belief. And now we, as we baptize, we tell people that we believe in this gospel. We believe in the Father who loves us, the Son who has died for us, and the Spirit who makes us alive and seals us. And it just gives us another note here that gospel proclamation is not just something to be private. This isn't an idea where people can say, hey, I'm a Christian, by the way, bye. Right? They, they hide. This is not the idea. The idea is, I'm a Christian, see me. My life is on display. I'm imperfect. I'm not right. But I want to push you to Jesus. Right? Sometimes it's taken as, well, you're acting like you know everything and nobody else does. And it's, no, I know nothing. And I, I just want to grow closer to God. And I want you to know him because he's changed me. So we want the, the proclamation of the gospel to be public, to, to profess our faith in the triune God. And we want people in the world to know that we're followers of Jesus. So to make disciples, we're to baptize them in the name of the Trinity. And then verse 20, it tells us that we're to teach them to observe everything that I, Jesus, has commanded you. So making disciples is about proclaiming the gospel, baptizing people in public profession, marking those out who say, here's one that follows Jesus by their profession of faith through baptism. Here are those that are not, but are maybe pursuing God. And then second part of making disciples is teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded them. So everything that, that Jesus has done in the entirety of Matthew's gospel here Every time he went and reached somebody who was in sin and told them that their sin was forgiven through God's mercy and grace, they're to proclaim that. Every time Jesus said, here's what the prophets have written, here's what the scripture has said, that is what we're to teach people. We exist to be a teaching church, not just a practicing church, but a teaching church where we say here is God's instruction. The Bible is God's instruction. Somebody had said that a church is a place that believes the Bible. Amen to that. The authority of the local church rests right here in God's words to us, not in the power of, uh, of the Pope. It doesn't exist in the power of somebody who sits a, a thousand miles away from us and tells us what to do. It exists in God and what he has spoken through his word. So we can know God and we can walk with him through what he has taught us in the scripture to teach everything that I commanded you. This is the idea of, of not just teaching how we're to act, but what we're to believe. So we, we teach things like godly character. What does it look like to walk in a way that brings glory to God? How, how are you known?
for who you are, not just in what you do publicly, but what you do privately? How is there a difference in your life? Is it reflecting God or is it not? It's also teaching them to be obedient to God. God commands things. He tells us that we are to be salt and light. So we are to be salt and light. He gave us a command here in Matthew 8, 28. Go and make disciples. So we've been commanded that. So now we need to walk in obedience to that. It's not a suggestion, friend. It's a command. And so we walk in obedience to that, knowing that there are going to be times that we fall flat on our face. But here's the good news. There is so much grace in the Lord Jesus. His grace is unending. It's a wave that just crashes on us again and again and again. We fall short, but his hand is always extended. His grace is always available. And his power comes when we recognize we can't do it, but he can. It's the instruction of Scripture. Here's what the Bible says. Every time we get into this pulpit, every time we get into a small group, every time we get together with one another, our goal as we make disciples is not to say, hey, here's what I think about God, but hey, here's what God says in his word. It's why we proclaim again and again that preaching from this pulpit comes directly from this word. It's not Jordan's opinions on five different verses of the Bible. It's here's the book of the Bible, the verses that are laid out, and here's what God has said to his people. And now here's how it relates to us. That part's more of me than the the majority of it has to come from what God has said to his people, why he said it. The word of God has to be proclaimed. So we have to come back again and again to the Bible. We're also to teach faithfulness to the gospel. We're to be a faithful people, which means that we're to be an enduring people. That in those times of the, va- or the valleys that we're, we're looking up to the Lord, and the times that we're pe- at the peak and we, we look up around and see all that God has done, we, we celebrate and say, look at his goodness to us that he has continued, and we are to continue together. And then Jesus, as he gives them this command, the second half of verse 20 says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So how long are we supposed to make disciples? Always to the end of the age. This is, this is the vehicle that the church drives. It's, a, it's our mission, right? There is one central purpose that we have as gathered Christians, it's to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel, by affirming one another in the ordinances, and by teaching and living together as the family of God. And so we're to do this always to the end of the age until Jesus returns. There is no end date that we know of, but we know that there is an end date in sight and that Jesus will return in power and victory and glory, and the earth will be restored to its intended order for the way that God has created it for his glory and for his goodness. Our mission, church, is to make disciples who multiply the kingdom. And where does this multiplication come from? I think it comes from Luke's instruction that Jesus spoke in Acts chapter 1. Steve read this passage for us this morning, and I just want to briefly touch on it. It says in Acts 1 verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked the Lord, will you restore Israel, the kingdom to Israel at this time? And so this is the the picture of the resurrected Jesus on the mountain speaking to the disciples. And he says, and the disciples come to him 
with a question. Lord, are you going to bring the kingdom? And what they mean by that is, Lord, are you like going to do the ultimate work of restoration right now? Is, is everything going to seize and, and God's kingdom and glory be brought on display? And then he said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we're called to be obedient through making disciples, baptizing and teaching them, knowing that we're to do this till the end of the age and that Jesus is going to be with us. And then he gives us some good instruction here in Acts 1.8. When the Holy Spirit has come, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in all Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Matthew puts it, you're to make disciples of all nations. But then Luke's writing in Acts shows that Jesus kind of brought in different scopes, right? You're to be focused in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The, the end goal is all of the earth would know Jesus, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. But you've got to start somewhere. And so you start in your Jerusalem, in your context. For us, that's Hebron. So we start in Hebron. And we proclaim the gospel and we work our way into Judea, right? That's eastern Connecticut or the, the state of Connecticut. And then maybe Samaria, all of the nation to the ends of the earth. We proclaim the gospel in every nation, tribe, and tongue that Jesus is Lord. Our mission is to make disciples and multiply God's kingdom for his glory. We are the church. We exist to proclaim the gospel, to affirm one another by the ordinances, and live together as God's family. Church, we get to be involved in God's mission of proclaiming the gospel. What a good truth for us. What a good encouragement. Let's pray. Father, would you give us strength as your people? God, we're we can easily be wound up by the things that are going on in our world and, and we can pause and we can, we can have fear and terror. God, we can be overcome by the task that's in front of us. But God, I pray that these words that your son has spoken, 